Father, the only reason we can pray and that you hear us is because we have an advocate standing next to you in the person of Jesus. That his work on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection gives us a way to be connected again with you. And we thank you for that. Would you teach us this morning? Would you guide us by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word in the midst of your people? Would you give us eyes to see what we need to see? Would you give us ears to hear what we need to hear? Would you give us hearts that would be soft and humble and transformed to live as you've called us to live? We ask that you would do it. We thank you for your goodness to us, your pursuit of us. May we understand it in a deeper way this morning. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, um, we went out to California last week, and we sent our two, two of our three kids on the bus with everybody else, and then my wife and I drove out uh, after. And we drove out on Friday, and in the midst of our drive, uh, um, if, if you didn't know, the, the College Softball World Series just finished last week. So... Um, for some of you that follow basketball, March Madness is like a big deal, right? In your house, when that happens, it's really fun to watch. You're really engaged in it. You fill out brackets. So in our house, March Madness is a big deal, but the College Softball World Series is a massive deal because my wife played softball in college, won a national championship, and she has been a pitching coach um, since college. And so we have a bullpen in our backyard, and so she is heavily invested in the sport. And so during the following weeks, there's super regionals, and then there's regionals, and then uh, there is the College World Series, eight teams that fight against each other to win a national championship. And so in the midst of driving out to California on Friday, because we have ESPN+, Plus, all of a sudden, our conversation halts because you can watch the game on your phone. So we're driving across the eight, and she's watching it, and just, man, she could watch in real time what's happening. It's exciting games, and uh, we had service. We were connected almost the whole way through, if, which was surprising to us, but she could continue to watch the games. And so if you've been on that drive to San Diego, you know there's a couple points when you're in California, you kind of wind up by these mountains, kind of by the border of Mexico, and you don't have service. And so she's watching a game. She's excited about what's happening. It's a close game, and then all of a sudden, and it stops, right? Like it starts to buffer and it just freezes and she has no connectivity to the network and she can't watch what she wants to watch. Have you ever experienced a frustration like that? Whether it's your own internet connection or something like you're in the midst of it, you're, and then all of a sudden you have that wheel or it just freezes and it buffers and you're just like, ah, no! And what I want to suggest to you is if you don't have connection to your network on your phone, you can't do what you're trying to do. And if we don't have connection, we won't work as humans. And some of us feel that way with God. We feel like our connection has been buffering. We feel like it's frozen, both with our connection with God and our connection with other people. Whether you go, man, I felt connected to God. I know what that feels like. I feel like he's been in my life, but right now I feel distant from him. I feel disconnected from him. I, I don't know why. Or maybe you feel disconnected from other people. Maybe there's been a falling out in a relationship, and you go, ah, I knew we were connected at one point, but now it just feels like we're buffering and we're not connected as we once were. And what John is going to give us this morning and throughout the entire letter that he writes in these five chapters is what does it actually look like to have assurance to be connected to your father, to God again, and what does it look like to be connected with one another? 
And Dave did a great job last week of just kind of unpacking who wrote this book and the audience and the cultural context and the, the themes that get woven over top of the five chapters. And in it, he mentioned there's this one theme of kind of knowledge or belief that John is trying to help his readers in the church understand in the midst of this division. There's this knowledge and this belief of understanding how to be connected with God and other people. There's also obedience and behavior that can make you disconnected from other people and from God. And so what does that look like? All connected in the third theme of love. And so these themes kind of run over top of each other in these five chapters that we are going to unpack in the next 12 weeks. And what I want to do this morning is actually go back a little bit um, because really this, this idea of verses 1 and 2 that we just read are, are kind of the punchline for what John says in verses 5 through 10. So if you have a Bible, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a device, but let's go back to 1 John chapter 1. Let's look at verses 5 through 10 just to give us some context of what we're running into in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. So this is what it says, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Dave did a great job of explaining that last week if you weren't here, just like yeah, how, how there's certain things in our created order that, that actually grow in the dark like mushrooms and cockroaches and, and our sin. It's something that grows in the dark. But God is light, and to get healing, we need to expose our sin and bring it into the light, even though, man, it hurts or it's painful, it's for confusing. Verse 6 says, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we see we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Let's unpack this just for a quick moment so that we can get to verses 1 and 2. Because in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, John uses this language at the start of each one of those verses. Look back at your Bible. What does he start with each one of those verses? He starts with this phrase, if we say. If we say this, but we do this, we're incongruent with what we're saying and what we're doing. He's saying like, man, how you present yourself, what you say matters to how you actually live. And let's just walk through these three sayings that he says in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Verse 6, again, he says, if we say we have fellowship, now this word fellowship is the word koinonia in the original language in Greek, and some of you know this word. It's this deep connection socially. Like it's, 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 it's more than just hanging out, more than just being friends. It's like this deep, intimate social connection and intimacy that's the way the word is spelled out. And so if we say we have this deep, intimate connection with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Now, this language walk is helpful for us to unpack, too, because sometimes we read this and we go, well, it feels like I'm walking in darkness all the time. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. He's going to get to that because Christians, man, we make all kinds of mistakes all the time. But this language of walking means this consistent pattern 
This consistent pattern, not, not a step in darkness, but walking in darkness. So he's saying, like, if you're saying, listen, I'm all about God, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but over here, you're walking in this pattern of darkness continually, you are incongruent. What does he say? We lie, and we don't practice the truth. Practicing the truth, that's an interesting phrase. Right? We understand the idea of practice, something we do over and over and over again. And what he's saying is like, you're, you're, what you're saying and your behavior is incongruent with each, other, with each other, and you're not practicing the truth. And what I think he's really after in verse 6 is this idea of kind of posturing. Kind of posturing, right? You're posturing yourself one way. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in God. But then you're living in a different way. You're living in this dark reality. Maybe it's a secret sin. And Dave kind of pointed that out last week. Maybe it's this thing that you're dealing with habitually. Nobody else knows about it. But you're walking in this consistent pattern of it. That's incongruent. You're not practicing the truth. And some of us come into spaces like today and we act one way with this group, and then we go to our jobs, or maybe we act this way in our communities throughout the week, or youth group throughout the week, and then we go to school, and we're with some other people, or we go to our job, and we're some other people, and we act totally different. He's going, that's incongruent. You're not practicing the truth. You're posturing yourself in a way that's incongruent and doesn't have integrity. That's a problem. If verse 6 is about posturing, let's look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, what I think he's getting, if, if verse 6 is about posturing, verse 8 I think is about minimizing. It's about minimizing your sin. It's about this idea of like, well, I'm not really that bad. My sin, my, my stuff I mess up on, it's, it's, it's really not that bad. It's not as bad as this person. And you start comparing yourself to other people and you're minimizing your sin. You're pretending that what you have done is not really that bad. And if you're operating in that way, you're actually deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. If you're posturing, you're lying, you're not practicing the truth. If you're minimizing your sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. I don't know about you, but this happens all the time to me. Right? And this happened back when um, I, I, I was a teenager and I was struggling with re really the addiction of pornography, which feels shameful even to say in a group of people like this. But in the midst of that, man, I was going to that place because, man, I was trying for control. I was trying to get things together in my life. I wanted some type of uh, a, a, a bump to feel better about myself. That's the reason I was going to those places. But then when I started walking with Jesus and realizing, like, that is not the best operation for me. That's actually really unhealthy. And when I stepped into accountability circles with certain men in my life to kind of go like, hey, let's, let's fix this practice in you, what I started doing was minimizing my sin. Right? I go, oh, how, how was it? How, how'd you do this last week? Oh, you know, like, uh, I wasn't great, but I was okay. Like, I, I start downplaying, I start minimizing, I start making it seem as not as bad as it actually was. And when I started to do that, to minimize my sin, I was deceiving myself. Not really going to get the help I need. I'm not really bringing it into the light. I'm kind of just letting it open just, just a little bit. And man, we do this all the time. We minimize our sin. And we'll, we'll, we'll get a breakdown of what sin actually is in a minute. But minimizing your sin is an unhelpful practice. It's not congruent with what you say and what you do. 
So verse 6, he's talking about your posturing. You're, you're saying one thing, you're doing something else. Um, verse 8, is he's kind of talking about minimizing. It's like, oh, it's really not that bad. If you say you don't have sin, you're minimizing it, and you're deceiving yourself. Verse 10, what does he say? He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So verse 6 is about posturing. Verse 8 is about minimizing. Verse 10, I think, is about this idea of having arrived. Right, this idea that you're going like, well, like, I, I really didn't struggle with that in the past, and I really didn't have a problem with that. I don't really want to share. Like, I've arrived spiritually, and even the people that John is addressing and writing to in the culture kind of had this air of Gnosticism going like, no, we've actually arrived spiritually. We don't sin anymore. That was really never a part of what we do. And he's going like, if you say you've arrived, that's an arrogant posture. That's an incorrect posture. You're not making yourself a liar. You're not deceiving yourself. You're actually making God a liar. Because we've all fallen short. We all fall short and make mistakes all the time. Why would John go after these areas for the people in the church that are experiencing this division? Why, why would people, and why do we posture? Why do we minimize? Why do we act like we've arrived even within the church? Why do we do those types of things? It's because we're kind of self-protecting at some level, whether it's with God or it's with other people. And I think what was going on here, and I think what goes on in our own hearts and our own lives is that, that we don't really understand who our advocate is. Or we might understand who our advocate is, but we don't understand the power of what he has done through the cross. Like we're kind of minimizing what Jesus has done on the cross and we're kind of still putting it on our shoulders and what we have to do, we don't understand and they didn't understand the freedom that Christ's work on the cross actually produces in them. And because of that, they end up posturing, they end up minimizing, they end up acting like they've arrived. It's the same thing we see in Genesis 3. It's this kind of covering up with fig leaves when you're posturing or when you're minimizing or when you're acting like you've right. You're covering yourself. You're not being congruent with what's actually true. And John's saying that's a problem. You really want to get healed? You want to know what it's like to experience full joy, which he says in chapter 1, verse 4. I'm writing that you would have full joy, that you would understand what it means not to walk in sin, but being congruent, that you could come into the light. And man, I thought Dave did such a good job of kindly exposing our faults in the church in general, that we're not always a place that you can bring your junk. You can bring your mess. There's judgment on the other side of that. And you go, well, I'm not, I'm not going to share that. <laughs> like I, 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 this doesn't feel like a safe place for me to share my real struggles. And so I'll, I'll play the pretend game, I'll posture, I'll minimize, or I'll act like I'm good. And men and women, we need to be a community that allows brokenness and messiness. That's how we get healing, into the light. That's what John is driving us to. That leads us to verses 1 and 2. And I love the pastoral language that John uses, as, as Dave mentioned that. Like, he's, he's an old last man standing. He's probably the last disciple that's around. And he gives this, like, loving, fatherly advice. Even you see it in the language in verse 1. He says, my little children, and I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That you don't have to posture anymore. That you don't have to minimize anymore. That you don't have to act like you've arrived anymore. That you wouldn't sin. That's why I'm writing these things to you. 
And some of us, man, we, we, uh, we see that word sin, and it showed up a lot already in uh, the, the, the letter that we've, that we've been covering last week and in this week. But most of us, when we read that word, because of our context, we think sin is just bad behavior. Uh, but the Bible speaks of the word sin in a much more holistic and broad way. So we're going to watch a video real quick. It's a five-minute video from The Bible Project. This is a group out of Portland. They do really, really good work with helping us understand what does that Bible actually mean to its original uh, hearers, and then what does it mean to us? Because this original word sin, it, it's translated one way in the Old Testament because that's written in Hebrew, and in, uh, in the New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic, and this word Greek is harmatia, the word that uh, John is using here. And so this is going to give us a better picture of understanding if John is saying, I'm right these things so that you don't sin what does sin actually mean let's watch this for five minutes and should help us understand at a deeper level what john is trying to communicate most people assume the bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are and that's true it's also true that the bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people using words like sin iniquity or transgression and so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. 
It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others, and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> just that sin is not just this bad behavior, but it's something deep within us that is not loving God and not loving others, and it's not making us the humans we were meant to be made. So again, John in the first verse of chapter 2 says, little children, I'm writing these things to you that so you may not sin. You don't have to posture anymore. You don't have to minimize anymore. You don't have to act like you've arrived anymore. But, he says, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He uses this language of advocate, and you saw it in the video, this advocacy that Jesus has to help us. An advocate is one that helps in a time of need. Helps in a time of need. As we were driving back from California, on, uh, we stayed for a couple days after, and we drove back on Thursday uh, afternoon, and we're driving, and about halfway through, um, driving the van, and I try to swerve, but I, I don't swerve in time, and there's something plastic in the road. I can't tell if it's a tire or something else, and I hit it. So I hit it. We keep going, and all of a sudden, you hear this, do 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 It's not my tire, um, because we drove over the middle of it, and so you hear this, do 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 but it feels like the car's driving fine. It doesn't feel like it's the engine, so we pull over, pop the hood, which I, I don't know why I do that. I don't, I don't know anything about cars or engines, anything. Well, let's pop the hood. Pop the hood. I, I can see if something's blown up, I guess. And 
Everything's running. It looks normal. Close the hood again. Get back on the road. So then we get off on the next exit at the gas station. Get off on the next exit at the gas station. I look under the car. And you know that plastic kind of shield or covering right under your hood? What had happened was when I passed over that object, whatever it was, it caught some of that plastic and it ripped basically two of the screws off the plastic. So the plastic was just bouncing in between the, the bottom of the car, not the road, but just like the other, and it was making this noise. So I assess it, I look at it, and I'm, 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 I'm not the handiest guy, <laughs> but I'm like, let's get some zip ties. I think I can MacGyver it, right? Because it's like, we just got to get home. So we get some zip ties. I go underneath the hood. I'm, I'm feeling like a man. I zip tie it up. I'm like, okay, I think we got it. I think this is good because a lot of the other screws are still intact. We get back on the road, and for like the first five, ten miles, no noise. It's great. And then, da -da 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 -da. I was like, ah, come on, man. But it's like, well, we're trying to decide, you know, trees going like Googling, like what happens if your plastic thing falls off, like as we're driving. <laughs> She's my navigator, you know. And it's like, well, let's just see how far we can get with this thing, because it's just an annoyance right now. We know it's just bouncing in between itself. So... We get um, close to Phoenix. We're about Buckeye area out, out there. And uh, all of a sudden, we hear a do, 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 do. It starts slamming the pavement. So it's like, okay, well, I got to get off the road now. So uh, the next exit, we get off the road and pull into the first stop. And I, and I assess it. I look under it again. And like the whole thing, all the screws on the top have been ripped off. And the zip ties were still holding. Yep. Um, <laughs> but there was like one screw on one side and then two I was like, well, if I can just unscrew those, we can take it off and we can make it home and get a new thing and we'll be okay. So there happens to be a Home Depot right across the street. I was like, it's perfect. So I run across the street because I don't have a screwdriver in my car. What is this, you know? And so I run across the street. I buy a little screwdriver. I run back and I get under the car and I get one of the screws out. And I'm like, this is great. We're going to be fine. And then I go and I can't reach the other two screws. Like they're like tucked away kind of underneath the tires. Like I can't, I can't get to them. And so luckily, when I was running back from Home Depot, I saw there's a tire shop, like two exits, not exits, but two kind of parking lots away. And so I was like, okay, we'll drive over there, because clearly they can get up on the lift and, and get it off. And so we drive over there. I pull in right when a, a worker is pulling in a car. Hey, do you need help? I said, hey, here's the deal, man. I just drive back to California. There's these two screws. I can't reach them. Is there any way? Like, I'll Venmo you. I'll pay you. Like, can you just reach up there and get them? And he kind of looks at me like, you're a failure of a man. Uh, <laughs> But he was kind, and he said, yes, I will help you. And so he said, just pull it in right here. So I pull it in. Um, he looks at it, assesses it. He goes back. He gets the right tools. He comes back. It's like two seconds. He pops it off, and, and we're off and running. And some of us, with our sin, we act like I was acting. Um, we think we can fix it. We do our best effort. We run across the street to Home Depot, whatever that looks like in your life, whether it's with God or with other people, right? It could be with God. It's like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this more. I'm going to stop this sin more. I'm going to protect myself more. Or it could be with other people, right? I'm going to do these things more. Now, it's not wrong doing things more, but eventually with your sin, you are going to run up to the same problem I ran up to is I don't have the skills or the tools to fix my problem. I didn't have it. I needed an advocate. I needed somebody to step in with the right skills and the right tools to help fix my problem. And this is what John is saying. He's like, listen, your sin, you have no match for your sin. 
your shame, your unforgiveness, your hard heart towards other people to not walk with God, you are going to continue to fail. Even when you walk with Jesus, you're going to continue to fail. But do you know I have an advocate? Somebody that comes alongside and helps you in your shame. Somebody that comes alongside and helps you in your unforgiveness. Somebody that comes along and helps you in your relationship because you get to that point where you go, there's nothing else I can do. And the good thing and the gracious thing that he says in verse 1 is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. What does that actually mean? Verse 2, look down at it. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for uh, only for, for also the sins of the world. That word propitiation was like, what, what does that mean? We don't use that word outside of church usually. Propitiation is the act of gaining the favor or making things right with somebody, especially ever after having done something wrong. It's making things right when something has been done wrong. So in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your posture, you're minimizing, you're acting like you've arrived with God and with other people, and you keep making a mistake, and you try to keep fixing it on your own. Do you know, and this is what um, John is saying, to give us assurance for our relationship with Christ, to be reconnected with the Father, because our sin breaks our connection with God. It makes that buffering circle. We don't know what we're doing because we have sinned against the Holy God. So when I make a mistake there ought to be a distance from God because he's holy and right and perfect but because you have a relationship I have a relationship with Jesus do you know you have an advocate that stands right next to the father and when you fail and when I fail I go I can't do it anymore I'm messing up and he goes no 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 remember what I did on the cross not just for your past not just for right now but for your future sins what I did advocates on behalf of the Father. It makes it right for me to be reconnected in fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. But many times I'm not trusting in that advocacy, trusting in my own effort. What John is telling us, he's like, no, stop. Stop trusting in yourself. Because what happens is you do start posturing, you do start minimizing, we pretend or we perform and we make the cross small instead of going and standing only where our advocate stands and saying, like, Jesus is the only way I'm reconnected because what Hebrews says is we can approach the, thr the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus stands in our place as an advocate. And as the Father looks at me, he looks through the blood of Christ and looks at Jesus and goes, that's paid for. That's paid for. And because of that, we can start bringing our things into the light. We can start having actual healing. God heals us in the midst of that. If we don't trust on our advocate in Jesus, not only for um, the sins that separate us from God, but even as Christians, as the blood covers us, if we don't trust in that, who is going to fix your problem of shame? Who's going to fix your problem of unforgiveness? The world will offer counterfeit versions of that, but they won't satisfy you. It's only through Christ, and it's only through his blood. That's what John is trying to communicate to a people that feel disconnected from God, and they feel disconnected from each other. You know, my brother-in-law, he works in the tech industry, and anytime our internet's out in our house, I don't try and figure it out, just like popping the hood. Like I, like, I call him. I say, hey, man, can you come over and look at this? And he comes over, and he troubleshoots, and he does like these three things, and he reconnects us. And John is saying like, hey, check these things. Are you, are you posturing? 
Are you minimizing? Are you acting like you've arrived? Check those things. That's why you feel disconnected from God. That's why you feel disconnected from others. And he'll continue as we study the letter to give us those indicators to go, hey, how's that going? Let's bring it into the light. Let's realize we have an advocate in Christ who cleanses us from our sin. Stop trying to fix it on your own. You cannot, you will not do it. Lean into what Jesus has done for you. And the way we do that is we practice confession. That's why we do confession in our liturgy every single week as a rhythm to go, what do we need to bring into the light? What do we need to expose to God and to other people? Because that's actually where we get healing. And we want people in our community to have a constant rhythm of humility and vulnerability and honesty, that we haven't arrived spiritually, that we still mess up all the time, that we don't minimize or defend our mistakes, that we have a posture of arrogance about us. We don't want that. Instead, we want to be people of confession. We want to confess to God. We want to confess to each other. We want to say, man, I'm sorry. Man, I messed up. I had to confess to multiple people this morning because I forgot to tell him to get the juice last week and first service people you were dipping it in I think Snapple <laughs> last week and I could make all kind of excuses like well I was getting ready for camp or no that's my fault I go I'm sorry about that I'm sorry I put you in that position but the only way I have the courage to do that is because I know who my advocate is I know where I have freedom my freedom doesn't lie in what you think of me or what, you know, like my freedom lies in what Jesus has done. So that frees me up to be honest, not to posture, not to minimize, not to act like I've arrived, but to go, no, like I can be honest. And that's our role in confession is to be honest and to understand not only who our advocate is, but what he has done for us. And that's why we take the table, the elements every single week. In the midst of our confession, in the midst of the Spirit bringing things to light. Because again, we deceive ourselves. That's why we need to be in community. Are you open to somebody coming alongside you and going, hey, I've kind of noticed this about you? Would you receive that? We go, ah, what are you talking about? We need each other because we're deceived even in our own hearts with what we believe to be sin. And so as we make our way down the aisle for those of that follow Jesus to remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross with his body being given to us and his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins, may that be the case that the Spirit would engage and activate your imagination as you make your way down the aisle. Where have you been posturing this week? Where have you been minimizing your sin this week? Where have you been acting like you've already arrived this week? And as the Spirit does that work in you, may He lead you to those areas so you can come and you can exchange them in the midst of your confession for the only thing that will make you clean in doing so. And in doing that, may your fellowship, your connection with God, both with Him and with other people, be restored. That's the hope. And that's our desire this morning. Let's pray to that end. Father, would you move in and through us as we respond to your goodness, to your love, to what you have done. I know in my own heart, God, I, I just lean because of my family, my upbringing, all those things that I, I lean to posturing and I lean to minimizing and I lean to acting like I've already arrived as a way of protecting and covering myself up in my shame. 
And Father, just as we see at the end of Genesis, you cover us with a blood sacrifice, with animals dying and covering us uh, with skins. You cover us through the work of your cross to allow us to have freedom to move toward you and to move toward one another. May we live in that freedom. Spirit, would you point out places we're deceived? Would you point out places that we do this in our heart? And may we be a community that would embrace each other's brokenness, embrace each other's mistakes, not act like we have it all together, but act like you do and lean into that truth. We ask that you would do it in and through it this morning. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.